Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you're listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 45, brought to you by acmescience.com. On today's episode, I am joined by Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, television host, and author of the new book, Space Chronicles. Guess what? We talk about space. Here we go. Joining me today on Strongly Connected Components, I have Neil deGrasse Tyson, the Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium, uh, the host of Nova Science, now frequent guest on wonderful shows like The Daily Show and Colbert Report, and author of the new book Space Chronicles. Hello, Dr. Tyson. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. So I have to do a, a tiny bit of due diligence here. I'm technically a math podcast, so I'm going to just start out with a quick question. If someone is a mathematician, they're looking at some of the work that you do, the astrophysics work that you do, what sort of intersections might they see? Oh, it's not about intersection. It's about <laughs> the fundamental language of the cosmos itself. So, in fact, the analogy I like to give is just, you know, you visit China, you want to speak Chinese so you can communicate with the culture. And you want to talk to the universe, you have to know mathematics because that is the language that the universe has opted to, <laughs> to communicate back with us. So there's nothing we do that doesn't involve some level of mathematics, typically calculus and higher, uh, the differential equations. Um, there are there's some exotic math out there that hardly ever shows up. And I happen to like math, or at least like to follow what it is that people who are good at math do. And so I, I like seeing where all these places math has gone but it's only the subset of that math that the universe, that we apply to the universe in astrophysics. What is kind of maybe one of the, the least expected uh, kind of areas of mathematics that you have now seen the universe speaking to us with? <laughs> uh, let me think. I would say, hmm, least expected. I would say I have to go back in time for this. I think it was not expected that non-Euclidean geometry would have any relevance to anything in the world. And in fact, it is the very fabric of the, th of the four-dimensional space-time continuum. And so that you need to abandon all the rules of Euclid to go to the non-Euclidean uh, regime. And all of that effort that got put into the fact that parallel lines either diverge or, or, or meet, you know, I mean, these are the two variances depending on the curvature of your space. And, you know, the, the degrees of a triangle sum to either greater than 180 or less than 180, these are kind of fun weirdnesses that, that in their day was just sort of a curious uh, version of, of geometry. And it applies to the universe, and we're glad that the two methods and tools were available to us to reach for them and apply them straight out. 
Okay, so now that I've done my math due diligence, I can talk to you about okay. other things. <laughs> uh, so reading through your book, one, one thing that I, I noticed uh, coming up again and again was where you are, are currently director of, the Hayden Planetarium. So I, I was wondering kind of what the Hayden Planetarium has, has meant to you throughout, throughout your life, from the beginning of your life and, and to now where you are working there. Thanks. It was, it was a, the birth of my interest in the universe was a first visit to the Hayden Planetarium, age nine. It was a family trip, although many people, many people attend during school trips. I went as a family trip and I have a brother and sister and we went and, and I was struck by the sky when it came out. They dimmed the lights the dome, the, this domed room got dark and the stars came out. And I, I, I kind of feel like I was sort of uh, like as though the universe selected me and, and maybe I had nothing to do with it. It was a calling. And uh, by age 11, I was, I was confident that you could actually make a career out of this. At age nine, it's just a curiosity. Age 11, it was a career goal. And so that if you're one of these adults who gotten into the habit of asking that annoying question of children, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would tell them astrophysicist. And that was at the Hayden Planetarium, where I'm now director. So it's a, it's a, it's a story that you know, plays better in a small town. You know, a small town kid goes away, comes back, does good. And this town is too large for that to really rise <laughs> up and distract people for its, you know, how charming it is. But uh, I feel it every day when I walk in and I see kids who are themselves nine I ask, my, I ask, am I doing all I can to influence them the way educators and scientists of yesteryear <laughs> had done for me? So there's a passing of the torch there that I feel every day that I go to my office. Uh, a, a lot of your book has to do clearly with space. I mean, it is called The, the Space Chronicles. And I, I wanted to bring up just, just something I believe that, that you hit on on the book quite well. And that's, I mean, my... I'm lucky enough that my grandfather actually worked on the Apollo missions, which is great. Mm -hmm. and, and while I was growing up, there was nothing that I wanted to be more than an astronaut. I had a huge crush on Sally Ride. I got really excited when that uh, We Didn't Start the Fire song came on because Sally Ride's name was in it. Uh, and then <laughs> at, by the time I hit high school, it, it really wasn't... Uh, top of my mind anymore, and really no one I knew was was too into. We would love to go into space, but we definitely were not thinking about you know becoming an astronaut. We weren't thinking of that as a career. By the time I hit college, no one was talking about it at all, and so as yeah, completely faded, completely. That's yeah. correct. And so I was wondering how how can we get kind of that that interest that that say I had as as a child back into kids who are in school today? Well, you go to Mars, you double NASA's budget. You announce that you're going to Mars in a big way. You're going to select the next astronaut class now who will fly to Mars in 10 years, 15 years when the craft is ready. And that group of future astronauts are currently in middle school. You select them, and Team Beat will write about them, and, and people will be interested in are they eating well, or how are their grades, are they good students. They become the next generation's discoverers because we don't have such a classification for people anymore but that was once a major part of what society did it discovered and ex explored and there were those among you who participated in that adventure and you you followed their stories vicariously and you got a charge out of it and so did society 
So it's not a matter of putting a better teacher in the classroom. It's not a matter of uh, improving the science curriculum. It's a matter of putting a grand vision out there that only a government could undertake. And when that becomes fully funded, it drives all ambitions and it drives all um, a next generation of technologies and innovations that then pumps your economy. And then you've, you've just boosted the econo economic health of your culture and of your nation. So the issue here is not what can kids do. The issue here is what can adults do. And because adults run the world and they outnumber kids and, and among adults, there's rampant science illiteracy is, which is another force against any of these plans working. But in the 1960s, we went to the moon and everybody knew it. And you felt it right on down through the academic ranks, right on down to kindergarten. You knew it. And we thrived in an innovation culture, something that is long gone, long gone and long forgotten. What are we losing today because children are not feeling, say, the way that I did when I was uh, first in no, school? No, it's not because children aren't feeling it. It's because adults aren't feeling it. It's, it has nothing to do with the kids. The kids are all born scientists. They're curious. They explore everything around them. They, and the day that stops is because an adult said, oh, you're getting your shoes dirty. Oh, you're, you're misbehaving. Oh, you're, you're writing on the wall. Everything that a kid does that's exploration-driven not everything, but a good fraction of what a kid does ends up being squashed by an adult because it might make a mess, or it, like I said, it might make the clothes dirty, or it might break something. And so it's not about the kids. Adults keep referencing this entire problem to kids as though you fix the kids and all of society is better. Adults far outnumber kids and control everything, and adults vote. And so it's a matter of what is the mission statement of those who vote? Once you establish that, it becomes big and visible, gets written about it, and everything else takes care of itself. Okay, yeah, sorry, I, I understand that, and I, I think that I just really poorly worded my, my question. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a culture, uh, what are we losing because the adults are, are not... Uh, there you go. What we're losing is economic competitiveness. We're losing economic competitiveness, period. And we're losing the ability to keep our own jobs. Because when you don't innovate, well, you've got nothing new that you're doing on the assembly line, and everyone else figures out how to do it, and they'll do it for less. When you innovate, you, and, you, and you're part of an innovation culture, everything you do is new. Or, what you, or you have something new waiting down on the pipeline. And when it's new, other people have to figure out what it is you just innovated, and that takes time. So if you keep innovating, then you keep your jobs, and no jobs go overseas. Or if they do, they're not the jobs you wanted anyway. So we are missing this extraordinary opportunity to be riding high on the world stage. At the end of, of your book, in, in, the, in the epilogue, there's a really, a really interesting statement about, uh, specifically, this uh, a quote, the day our knowledge of the cosmos, is, uh, cosmos ceases to expand, we risk regressing to the childish view that the universe figurative, figuratively and literally revolves around us. So it, with, with that kind of thought in mind, it, does this mean, you know, kind of our knowledge of space, our, our knowledge of science, it's, it's more than just about the exploration, it's more than just about innovation? Well, if you're not enchanted by cosmic discovery, if you're not, if these elements of space exploration don't work on you, 
I'm not going to require that it does. I'm not going to twist your arm. But I'm pretty sure that if you live in America as an American, that you kind of bought into the free market economy. And in the free market economy, you don't want to die poor. So if none of the loftier reasons of going to space attract you, then surely the force that an active space program brings to bear on the economic health of society would. Because out of that comes jobs, and out of that comes innovation, and out of that comes entire new industries, and out of that comes inspirational career paths for students in the educational pipeline. It satisfies all of those requirements. How could you say no to that? It becomes an investment in the economic stability of your nation. Whether or not you gave any concern at all to cosmic discovery or science or engineering. Now, you've, you are an astrophysicist, but now you are also uh, a very public figure. And so how did, how did you end up kind of spinning off from doing your academic work? Because you do call yourself an academic quite correctly, but... It, yeah, it's my, it's, I'm culturally an academic, and, it's, and I, I can't wait to get back to do much more academic, many more academic things. There's some projects I'm engaged in right now. Among them is the, the reboot of Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and I have a couple more books that I'm thinking about. And when, when that begins to thin out uh, that part of my portfolio of activities, what will rise up in its place are, are, is, is a, a sort of a, a resurrection of my science program, my science activities, science research, that is. And I look forward to that. It'll be a couple more years away. But in the meantime, I'm doing projects that I think I can uniquely do, and which means I'd be irresponsible if I didn't take them upon myself to to do i mean as as a person who is probably never going to uh do the things that you have done what is it actually like as as a scientist knowing that you're appearing on these national television programs and people are listening to to the words that you are saying massive large amounts of people are people have the right or rather the we the scientific community have the obligation and the public has the right to know what it is we're doing because it's for most of what we do particularly in the physical sciences the funding sources are all tax-based so you you bought this research and so I take it upon myself as a duty to share with you the fruits of those discoveries and Carl Sagan was the first to do that in a big way and there are many of us sort of in his wake in, in these later years attempting to um, recapture that given that fact, I, I'm impressed by the actual level of energy and interest that the public has without getting their arm twisted. About 85% or so, I, I did the, calcul the calculation, about 85% of all the times I am on television, it's not because I have some marketing person trying to sell a book, although that happens on occasion, as, as it's happening these past couple of weeks. But primarily, the 85% of the invites come about because the universe flinched and the producer wants a soundbite. And so they come to me. And I'm happy to supply it. That's 85%. So that tells me that they're interested not because I'm twisting their arm, but because they're genuinely interested in these phenomena. Well, that's really good, to new, uh, good news to me. I, I like to know that the public is interested in the phenomena. So I, I want right, to right. ask you uh, one last question. Uh, and that is, what is the importance of looking up? 
<laughs> well, the asteroid might be coming. <laughs> you don't want to get caught looking down when something might smash you from above. Looking up, I think it's, it's the most humble thing you can do is look up and contemplate the vastness of the cosmos and the movement of the planets and the moon and the sun against the background sky. And armed with certain scientific points of enlightenment, you can transform your under-the-night-sky experience. That with, you know, when you know what's going on in the universe, how stars work, how far away they are, how many galaxies they are, how old the universe is, then the simple act of looking up becomes enriched with ideas and thoughts gleaned from mostly 20th century astrophysics, but continuing on into the 21st. Well, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. And that is all the time we have for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave me any feedback or perhaps suggest a guest, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. That is my real, legitimate, honest-to-goodness email address that I give out to all of my family and friends, too. So you can be sure that I'll get it. Also, make sure to head on over to acmescience.com and check out the blog post about this episode where you can find links to all of Neil deGrasse Tyson's stuff. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of Space Chronicles. It's really good. I really, really liked it. Like, I, I started reading it and just plowed right through it. It's great. Go buy one. Really. Do it. Now. The music on today's episode is, as always, from Hardened Firm and SP12. You can find SP12 over at opsound.org. Hardened Firm, you can go to Amazon. Search for the album Horses and Grasses. That's where the pie song's from. This episode is, as always, a Creative Commons attribution, share-alike licensed podcast, so please feel free to remix it at will as long as you give us credit. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you do come back for another episode of Strongly Connected Components.